Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are hello. you? Hello. Happy International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day. So I loved when we were in China, we discovered this wonderful tradition that they have there of giving out roses to your favorite women. So mm-hmm. virtually, we're giving roses to all of our favorite women out there in Shuklistan today. I love that tradition. Yes. I also came across my gift that they gave us for International Women's Day, which was the anti-pandemic sachet. <laughs> so does now your whole office smell of that sachet? It does. It's very powerful. And I don't think the scent has lessened in the year that it has been in the box. I wish this is definitely one of those times where I wish we had Sento vision because (laughs) we could describe how those sachets smelled, but it will never fully explain how powerful these smells are and how every time you smell it, I don't know if you have this experience, I am back in that hotel room in my brain. Exactly. But, you know, still haven't gotten COVID, so maybe it's working. I I haven't gotten COVID either. And we've been in some places that were very packed with people. I've been on airplanes and no COVID. So something about those sachets did it for us. I think so. Ah, you know what else is doing for us this week? Book club. Book club. Book Club Claire is back with our first book of 2023. And to celebrate Women's History Month, we are reading Inaugural Ballers, the true story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team by previous book club author Andrew Marinus. So take a listen to our conversation. Book Club. Claire, welcome back. What do you have for us? Well, we are... Reading Inaugural Ballers, the true story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team by Andrew Marinus. We have read books by him before, and it was a lot of fun to be able to actually come back to him and read another book of his. The first book that we read was Games of Deception, if you wanted to go back and read up on that and listen to that podcast episode. And Again, this was meant more for the teenagers, uh, young adult book. This is not a giant 500-page tome. It is a very manageable book to read for most ages, I would say middle school and up. I wanted to get your thoughts on the book. What did you think? As expected, another Andrew Marinus, very well-written, very well-researched put together a story with characters, with an arc. I do not know much about basketball. It's probably one of my least favorite Olympic sports. And I completely bought this book and followed the story and understood what was going on. And so excited to get to talk about it because I just thought this was so cleverly put together. I also loved this book. 
it almost didn't feel like a young adult book because it was written smartly and it didn't talk down to anybody. One of the things I loved about it was the way that Andrew put so much context into it because I think that kids today don't necessarily understand. And and even when like we were growing up, we didn't understand necessarily the things that came before us. Andrew did such a good job at putting the women's movement into context, putting the lack of opportunities that women had in sports into context, and then blending this story in so seamlessly. It just really was such a good book. And it was one of those you just wanted to keep reading more and more. You'd think he was taking a left turn into nowhere, but it just looped right back into the story and and just made it so much richer. And that's one of the things I just loved about this book. I could definitely see where you're talking about where it goes. It maybe starts the chapter in a completely different time in history. Like it's talking about the 1904 World's Fair and you're going, why are we talking about St. Louis World's Fair? But then you realize that, okay, the Native American people that were there for that atrocious human zoo played basketball. And he kind of brings that in as, oh, this actually probably was the first women's basketball team to play in the Olympics. And it was very cool to see that. And I agree. I hope that a lot of young women that are middle school and high school age read this book because it does give a very nice, concise look at the women's movement of the 60s and 70s. It gives you kind of that taste of where these U.S. women's basketball players' minds were at at that time without like hitting you over the head with a bunch of knowledge. But it still kind of intrigues you and makes you want to maybe read further into something like this. Okay, what is now? What is the feminine mystique? What are all these, you know, liberation movements and burning bras and, you know, what's all that about? And, you know, not realizing the restrictions that clothing at that time had on women. And, you know, we have a lot more freedom now, thanks to that. I I thought that he tread the line very carefully on whether he was going to give us too much information about something or just the right amount. He, He was very close to be like, do I really need to hear about all of this? But he was able to rein it in enough that it's like, okay, that was worthwhile for the rest of the story. Was there a player that you connected with throughout this book? Oh, I loved reading about Pat Summit's career as a player because she is just such a legend in the sport of women's basketball. And I have to say, I also do not follow basketball as a whole very much, but I absolutely knew who she was and how much she did for Tennessee basketball and women's collegiate basketball. And the her death so early was a tragedy because she gave she was just a brilliant player, a brilliant coach, and I loved seeing where she came from, how she got into the sport, the tough life she had growing up, and also how there was that little bit of encouragement from her dad here and there that made it worthwhile. I remember Nancy Lieberman doing commercials in, I want to say, the late 70s, early 80s when she was part of that first women's professional basketball league. And so to see her then where she came from, because to me, she was just this 
girl who did commercials and I knew she was a, a basketball player. So that was fun to put her in context of the Olympics and of sport in general. And she was so young compared to the rest of them. She was like, what, 16 or 17 while everybody else was in college or past college. And going back to Pat Head is what she's referenced here because she it, her maiden name is used throughout the book. I did not realize she was the head coach at Tennessee in 1974. And then she was playing on the 76 Olympic team. I laugh at that because I, I didn't realize that until the very end of the book when I was kind of looking up a little more information. I, I was like, I remember when she died, but I wanted to get some exact dates. And then I saw that she had coached from 1974 to 2012. And I went, wait a minute, <laughs> that can't be right. Someone's wrong on Wikipedia. Turns out they weren't wrong. Can you imagine your coach and you know, your, your coach is coaching you and you're like, all right, now I got to go play on the women's team for the Olympics. See you guys in two months. She's incredible. I, I loved hearing about her. I also liked hearing about Ann Myers, whose brother Dave was an NBA superstar for the Milwaukee Bucks, and just hearing her try to you know step out of her brother's shadow. And I'm sure that as an NBA athlete, that's got to be something hard to do. And Nancy Lieberman, I don't remember her as that. I remember her as Nancy Lieberman Klein when she was, I believe she was coaching on one of the first WNBA teams back in the late 90s. It might have been the New York Liberty. I can't remember. But that's where I remember her from. So a lot of these names were from that era where they were starting to get professional women's basketball off the ground. But take a backtrack a, a little bit into the old-timey, I guess you'd say, pre-Title IX women's basketball powerhouses. Were you aware of any of that pre-Title IX team dominance, or was this all new to you? Teams like the Nashville Business College and the Wayland Baptist College and Immaculata College were winning you know, national championships in the women's leagues. Who are these colleges? I've never heard of them, but women went there to play basketball and win championships. Were you aware of any of that? I wasn't, but I was particularly intrigued and excited by the Immaculata College story because I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. And when they started talking about the nuns and sports, it was very true to my experience. You know, there was a nun who led our, our cheerleading squad to like 18 county titles. And they would always be the ones sitting in the front row in their habits with the little pom-poms and so supportive. So when they had this, that these nuns were fighting for money and flying these girls around and creating this powerhouse, I said, of course it was the nuns because they believed in women's education, women's opportunity, women's sports. So that was a fun story for me to to see them. Oh yeah, this is this is across orders and across states. I didn't know of those colleges, but knowing the Tiger Bell story and how the Tiger Bells just aren't the same as what they were in the 60s, none of this seemed surprising to me, but I did want to mention that when I was in high school in the 19, late 1980s, we had a girl's gym and a boy's gym. And it was the old gym was the girl's gym and the new gym was the boy's gym. And I try to think of that nowadays. Thankfully, I don't see that as much. It is a shared 
experience for both the boys and the girls. Actually, in this neck of the woods, the high school that my school is associated with, people follow the girls team a lot more than the boys team because the girls team has been so dominant the past, I don't know, eight to 10 years. So it's like, oh yeah, the boys team, whatever. The girls team, they're going to districts. Here we go. And it that that is exciting to see. And, you know, they have two gyms now, but it's not a girls gym and a boys gym. It's like, it's the main gym and it's the annex. And I'm sure that when both teams are in session, they share. And I'm thankful for the trails that were blazed by people like this that helped to make that the reality because- Without that, I mean, who knows where we'd be at this point. It might have come to this, but it might have gone a completely different way. So yeah, I'm thankful for I, that. Yeah. And I would say that it's also interesting how long some of these changes take to make. And I, my, my school building is no longer there. The school moved to a new building. So I would imagine the situation is different now. But just the concepts and ideas and the way people thought how long that takes to shift and and change a mindset of, of how to think and that's one of the things that i liked about this book is that he showed okay this is the way we thought oh let's talk about phyllis shafley let's talk about what women were expected to do and be happy being housewives and you know you could get the kids off to school and put yourself together and have a full day playing bridge and then that's not really the reality, but it does take a long time for those stereotypes and that way of thinking to, to fully change in society. I thought what something was really clever that Andrew did was when he talked about resistance to Title IX and the implementation of Title IX, so many of the arguments that were made in the late 60s and the early 70s are the same that we hear now. And the way he, he phrased them and included them, talking about taking money away from the boys and the boys are the ones who really want to play sports and we have to cut boys programs because we got to give money to the girls. And it was frustrating and also brilliant in that we still hear those same arguments. Now, when people talk about, oh, we had to cut men's wrestling because we have to give money to the girls teams. And it's like, no, you have to cut men's wrestling because you got football. But it's always blamed on the women's teams. And he mentioned at the end, the controversy at the 2022 NCAA men's basketball versus women's basketball tournament. And it was the same thing that had happened to the women in this book 50 years later. You know, they did not get the facilities. They did not get the resources. So as far as women's sports have come, and there's a lot of people making a lot of money off of women's sports, women in sports still do not get the same opportunities. It has gotten better, I believe, especially seeing um, my parents, they live in Ann Arbor. So lately as empty nesters, they have adopted a lot of the sports teams at the University of Michigan, and they seem to gravitate towards the women's teams. Like they watched the entire gymnastics that the Big Ten hosted over the weekend just to make sure that Michigan stayed on top, which I don't think they did, but they, they followed Michigan. They, they know the gymnasts for Michigan. Last year, it was field hockey that they got into. So there's definitely an audience for women's sports 
And if those boosters and, you know, leaders of universities just would open their eyes to see that incredible talent that they have there instead of putting the scapegoat on them, you know, create those opportunities for sure. I was so crushed when there was a story from the University of Illinois where they spent like an entire year trying to put together this big track meet. And then the men's team decided they needed the track that day and it got canceled. And I could not imagine putting that much time and effort into a major event for our school and to just have one person say, we need the track. You can't go anywhere else. To, to see that that was the norm back then is crushing. Allison, did you see any of that? Oh, sure. I saw it in grammar school when we both had girls and boys sports. The boys team always had the cheerleaders go to their games. The girls team only had the cheerleaders if there wasn't a boys game. This was basketball. I don't think our, yeah, I don't think our girls team had cheerleaders at all. There were cheerleaders for boys basketball and there were cheerleaders for wrestling. And that was right. That we was had it. our we had our one cheerleading squad, but the boys were the ones where the cheerleaders went to the games. So it's it's a minor thing, but the boys team always got the scheduling done first and the girls team was always secondary even though the girls team is the one that was way more successful. Interesting. The other interesting point that Andrew made was that it's not even just the colleges that need to do better. It's the media that needs to do better because there is so little media focused on women's sports today, even with the explosion of certain publications. And like, I'll get a bunch of women's focused newsletters in my email, but that doesn't mean I can open up my local paper and see a ton of women's sports. They'll cover a little bit of tennis. They'll cover a little bit of high school because high school sports are big in my area. They'll cover a little bit of girls sports, but like, oh my goodness, boys football in the fall. Oh, that it's on the local news. It's, it's incredible. I definitely understand that. I also can push that there have been even improvements by the media and by schools, especially with girls basketball, kind of turning back into into our story. But seeing the rise of attendance in college women's basketball games has been really fun to see over the past, even like just the past three years, where they used to play in the same arena that the men do, but with far fewer people in attendance. And nowadays, I've been watching, they have games on ESPN on a regular basis. Give credit to ESPN. They do take a lot of time to talk about not just women's college basketball, but the WNBA. They have a whole you know show dedicated to it on ESPN2. Now, ESPN2, and I'm sure they don't have it throughout most of the offseason like they do for football, which doesn't seem to ever have an offseason. But they are working on it. And I know especially it's especially significant. I don't know if we planned this on purpose to have this episode airing in March, which, you know, is a month dedicated entirely to women. And I also appreciate that this book is being reviewed by three women. I just, you know, there's a lot of people that will, okay, we're looking at this and it's all like men. And so to I'm appreciative. And that's kind of why I gravitated to your podcast in the first place, because it was two women talking about the Olympics. And I'm very grateful to to have gotten to know you from that. Let's turn to the Olympics then. 
1976 is in Montreal. You have talked about that on a couple of podcasts. Jill, you've been there, correct? Did you see any talk or when you were there about the first women's basketball tournament or was that kind of something that was missed? Not that I remember in in one of the years that I went. I went in 2016, which was a big I think that was the 40th anniversary. And they had a whole bunch of different exhibits at different locations near Olympic Park. But that focused more on Montreal as a host city and what they did. And then when I went again in 2018, I didn't see a ton that I remembered. It was it was a little bit of everything about the games. What really stuck out to me, though, in this was the fact that they crammed so many people into the apartments and I had been able to get an Airbnb in the Olympic Village. It was tiny. It was a tiny apartment. And when I thought about the setup, because at the different museums, they had a setup of the bunk beds and whatever, what all the furniture looked like in the room. And and they all had ashtrays as well. Sign of the times. But thinking that the entire team got smashed into this tiny little apartment just was a little surreal. I, I couldn't believe that that the I could believe that the organizers did that, but I couldn't believe trying to function in that way. But the amazing thing was it was better than what they had in the lead up in the staging city when they had to sleep in a building that was under construction. It just that it it boggles your mind and and maybe I don't know, Allison, if it means has more meaning to us because we're closer to that, even though we didn't live their same experiences, that's still kind of close to us. And it's in that zeitgeist that you kind of grow up with. Sports were very different. The Olympics were very different. You know, Team USA was not a juggernaut in 76. You know, they they did not expect this women's team to even make the Olympics. It wasn't thousands of people. It wasn't such a corporate enterprise. You know, I loved when they talk about they talked about doing the staging and getting their uniforms and they're from Montgomery Ward, you know, a very ordinary Main Street retailer. Today we have everything custom made by Ralph Lauren. Very different thinking, you know, whereas at that time going to the Olympics was in some ways very representative of middle America. Whereas now it's, and it's not that the the competition has changed, it's still super elite sports, but just the landscape of elite sports has changed so significantly. You know, a lot of these kids, when they went to the Pan Am games or they went to world championships was the first time they had ever left the country. Andrew tells the story of a lot of the women being so overwhelmed when they go to Mexico and Colombia and that whole, the whole world just being so different and then coming to Canada and not having enough hot water and having to share one bathroom. And that's great because like you said, they didn't even have a place to sleep. And then they had this one booster who brings them over to his house, you know, the executive from Kodak and just how down home and seat of the pants all of these teams were running at 76. Right. And then you compare, as Andrew mentions in the book, you compare that to Rio, where the men's and women's basketball team had their own cruise ship. And that's where they stayed there. So they all had plenty of room. They had a lot of amenities. It's, it's just a totally different world for that sport today. I did love that, once again, the disco from Montreal 76 gets a mention. 
this disco must have been better than Studio 54 because anytime Montreal comes up, this disco gets talked about. It's very well, wasn't this wasn't this the time of disco? Like it, it was at its peak, and then after this, it just went all downhill. You know, disco demolition night and all that. Absolutely. Yeah. This is this is the time. This saying, you know, by 19... Well, there was the boycott in 1980. But by the time 1980 comes around, disco is definitely on the wane. But w- what else I loved in this book was that Andrew worked really hard to get a variety of opinions of what life was like at the Olympics from different athletes in different sports, including our very own Shoklastani, John McLeod, who was competing in water polo then. So it was so exciting when I turned the page and there he was being interviewed. And just that lent so much color to the story. And you really got a, a really good feeling of what those games were like for the athletes. I agree so much. I That was some of the book that I enjoyed the most. The roundup of getting all of their gear made me think of the uh, Instagram stories that Team USA always does right before the Olympics with the athletes coming in and showing off all their Ralph Lauren c- combos because they, they have like 18 different ways they could wear a shirt. And then talking about the village and the opening ceremony too and how they walked in and saw the queen in her little pink dress and you know, waving to them. And that must have been so surreal. And there was another mention, it might have been in the in the end notes or in the book itself, that this was kind of the last accessible Olympics. And by accessible, I don't mean like disability or, or wheelchair accessible. I mean, one where like the everyday person could just request tickets and get them. After this, you know, by 84, they had become such a hot commodity. And nowadays, Forget it. If you're not on on the ball about with your lottery, you ain't getting tickets. Yeah, I I really liked all of that Olympic talk, and I did also appreciate that the USSR was not placed as the bad guy in this book. I know a lot of times when you are going to be talking about the USA versus USSR, that's automatically what you put them in. The, the, that's the light that you will put them in. But here. Unfortunately, there were only, I believe, two Soviet athletes mentioned, but one of them, Ulyana Semjanova, the the tall seven-foot Russian woman who played and dominated against the Americans, you know, she was seen as, you know, this this amazing athlete, but she was also seen as a vulnerable woman who, you know, was insulted for her height and for her masculine traits. And I did appreciate that Andrew took the time to make sure that we got a well-rounded story when it came to her. I don't think there was enough room in the book to talk about the rest of the team, but I did really appreciate that. And also kind of highlighting the Canadian team as well that had struggled so much with racism in their, uh, and not understanding mental health when it came to Liz Silcott, who ended up getting kicked off the team, I believe, before the Olympics. Were there any other stories, either from the Olympics or even from the World Championships, the World University Games, that stuck out with you? I want to mention something about Ulyana. She was not Russian. She was Latvian. And I think that mattered a lot to us now in that it was like the American players at the time recognized that she was an outsider on that Soviet team because all if you were Latvian or Lithuanian, you were seen as less than native Russians. And that, of course, now that's such a huge 
part of our world. But I I want a whole book on her now. Andrew, we have your next book. I hope you speak I hope you speak <laughs> Latvian and Russian and whatever else you need. But she was such an interesting character and, and I completely agree that they were not painted as the enemy. They were simply painted as the dominant team and nobody could beat them. And the kindness that the other women showed to her in just feeling a lot of sympathy and feeling a lot of connection with her, I thought was a lovely piece of the story. Of course, there was that mention in the story when they were dining with them and how they were like comparing hands and stuff. And and one of the U.S. women called her Bozo, not thinking that she could understand her. And then at the end of dinner, you know, she just responds, you know, see, see you later. And the girl goes, wait, she could, I thought she couldn't speak any English. And the interpreter just says, well, she can't speak any English. She doesn't speak much, speak much English, but she can understand everything. And that, that was a key to kind of understanding her idea. And yes, I do totally agree. I would love to read a book about her. Post-Olympics. So they ended up winning the silver medal, which totally went over my head when I was reading the very what first paragraph of this book. And it mentions they're going to the silver medal game. At the end, I went, oh, they only got the silver? So that's now you know where my brain was. But it was really cool to see the aftermath of these Olympics because, yes, they did win the silver, but they were not treated as like pariahs. I think everybody kind of understood that the Soviets were going to win no matter what. Were there any stories of kind of their homecomings or the, you know, the aftermath in women's basketball that stuck out to you? Well, I have to say that it was interesting, and, and Andrew did touch on this a bit, because of the structure of the tournament, it was you played a game to win the silver medal, and it wasn't that you lost the gold medal match. And it, 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 it took a little bit of time to wrap my brain around that concept. But I thought that was really a cool way to do it because so many in pretty much every other tournament, it is you lose the gold. And this was such a nice way to win the silver. And you felt the joy that these women worked so hard to achieve. I want to mention that two of the players came from Southern Connecticut State University. And as a proud mom owl, I cannot let that pass. I really enjoyed hearing about Louisa Harris and Trish Roberts, who are African-American women who grew up in the Deep South and, you know, in a time of the KKK and uh, segregation or separate but equal, but not really equal, pretty not equal at all, to have them come back and get like a whole parade and, you know, special speakers, you know, lauding them for their efforts. There's one picture in the book, if, if you have the book. It's near the end uh, of Trish Roberts crying in an open back car as she's going through town. And I love that because, I mean, it doesn't show that everything's changed and everything's going to be for the better because that's just not how our world is. But it does show that there is room for progress. And this was an example of some progress being made. I, I just, I thought that was really great. I also appreciated hearing their stories and the way that Andrew framed it, not quite repetitive to a fault, but repeating the facts of what the Deep South was at that time. He was really good at trying to frame this for younger readers to understand just how unequal this country was and is. And like you said, it, it's a drop in the bucket, the way these women were honored. And that picture really got to me, too. I cry a little bit 
at that that picture. And I also felt really bad knowing that, yes, everybody showed up and the whole town showed up for these women, including the white people of the town. But how much did it change how they felt and how they treated the black people in their town after that? I don't know. But it was nice that there was some recognition and that sports can do something to help move the needle a little bit. And there is mention a lot of times in this book where, okay, we have the women's liberation movement, but it was not equal for everybody, whether it was in third world countries when they were organizing in Mexico City, but that kind of failed because they realized that these white women in America had a different mindset about women's liberation than every other country in the world, just because they're, they're just trying to survive still. And also how that liberation movement was different for the African-Americans in our country, where they they can't even get to that first step, let alone get to the second and third steps that, that these white women were, were protesting for. I, I did really appreciate that. And that just is a credit to Marinus's thoroughness that he makes sure that every base is covered when it comes to this so that people can come at this from every angle and understand the purpose of this book is not just about women's basketball and the Olympics. It is about women's movements and progression in the, you know, latter half of the 20th century, to be honest. My favorite part of the book was actually the last chapter where he drew the line between these women of 76 and then to Don Staley and Cheryl Miller. And he he went all the way down to, you know, Don Staley was the coach for Tokyo for the American women. And I thought it was so interesting that he made the reader see the ripples that it wasn't just the silver medal in 76. The silver medal in 76 led to the American women dominating through the 2000s and how they didn't lose an international game for years and years and they won so many medals and how women from 76 became the coaches that then coached the women through that. And I think that makes it very easy for someone who doesn't remember 76 to understand the implications and importance of what those women did and what they sacrificed and what they went through and the joy that they still had for the sport. So many of them stayed and coached and participated and became executives or coaches in the WNBA. So we are still feeling what 76 did in women's sports. That night had no idea that USA basketball still is put puts a big emphasis on the history of the women's program for all of the the women who come into the program and how they all still use the original 76 team numbers on their jerseys no matter what the else they play under they are always honoring those women from 1976 with the numbers they wear on their backs oh that got to me that I got had to no me. idea I wrote that I wrote that down too because I thought that was such a beautiful tribute and such a nice connection and I think we as women don't always feel that history because oftentimes we're separated from it or it's cut off from us or it wasn't preserved and to be able to draw that straight line from 76 to the Tokyo team and you know every woman who's worn that number and you are part of that sisterhood that is really special 
Any final thoughts? Oh my God, I'm so excited to talk to Andrew now. I have questions. <laughs> I am as well. Oh, Claire, this has been a great pick. Uh, this was fabulous. You can't go wrong with Marinus' authored book, and this was no different. So thank you so much. What's coming up next? The next one just came out in the past couple of weeks, so I haven't gotten a chance to look at it yet, but I'm super excited. We are going back to the Winter Paralympics, and we are talking about Oksana Masters. If you watched any of the Beijing Paralympics last year, she was everywhere, it seemed like, oh, in biathlon and also in cross-country skiing. She was amazing, and her book is called The Hard Parts, A Memoir of Courage and Triumph. She's been promoting it uh, a lot lately if you follow her on her social media. So maybe you've read up, watched a clip of her talking about it. But her history is incredible, how she came to the United States and how she was able to use her disability to become such a premier athlete. So I'm very excited for the book. Hopefully you all can find it, get it at your local bookstore or at what, bookshop.org? Is that right? Yes, bookshop.org slash shop slash Flame Alive pod. Any books sold through that link, we get a little commission from and that greatly helps us produce the show. So thank you for doing that. All right, Claire, yeah. thank you so much. Great conversation as always. And we will look forward to seeing you next time. See you next time. See you in the library. Thank you, Claire. We are excited to have a Q&A with Andrew Marinus on Monday night, March 27th. This will be at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. It's online, so it's virtual, and you are more than welcome to attend. This is a free event to RSVP. Email flamealivepod at gmail.com and put book club in the subject line, and we look forward to seeing you there. You can follow Claire on Twitter at Cauldron Light. We will have a link to that in the show notes. And as we mentioned, our next book is Oksana Masters, The Hard Parts, and we will have a link to that in the show notes as well. That sound means it is time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at Seoul 1988, as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. My turn for a story. And because we talked about a women's first event today with Book Club, I wanted to talk about another time at the Olympics that women had the first event at their games. <laughs> you're you're shaking, shaking your my head. head because I know it's 1988 and still... I mean, straight through into the 2000s, where we get women mm -hmm. finally get to do something. <laughs> right. So Seoul 1988 was the first time that women got to compete in track cycling. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Because track cycling for men, an original OG Olympic sport. So it only took 92 years for women to get the right to compete at the games. Compare that to the basketball, which was just 40 years spread between those two. And you would think, like, for some of the sports, it's it, there's a lot of, well, the women's sport isn't as well developed, and we need to get world championships and things like that in order. But the sad thing with cycling, women's sports had been developed, and women really took to bikes early on when they came into being, and they had track cycling world championships by 1958. So it took 30 years for it to get into the games. Uh, another cycling note, women got the right to compete in road cycling for the first time at the Olympics in 1984, just four years prior. So we are finally getting, yeah, I know. 
I would think road would have been the fight rather than track in terms of, you know, preserving our delicate figures. <laughs> so at Seoul, men competed in five track cycling events. Women won. And that was the sprint. The competition had just 12 women from 12 different National Olympic committees. And the dominant competitors of that time were American Connie Perskaven Young, who uh, she had been a speed skater. And she did compete at Sarajevo 1984 in speed skating and was on the 1980 team as well, but apparently did not compete at Lake Placid. So she took up cycling as well. She had medaled at world champs from 82 to 87. She was a 10-time U.S. champ, just dominating in the sport right here. We also had Erika Salome of the Soviet Union, but the Estonian part of the Soviet Union. She took up cycling in 1981, just seven years prior, won a couple of gold medals at the 1983 Summer University Ad, and the next year she was on the national team and also had won just a ton of world championship medals in the 80s, including 10 golds. And the third main player of the day was Krista Luding Rotenberger from East Germany, also a double sport person, winter summer speed skater and track and cyclist. She competed at 1984 Sarajevo for speed skating. She competed at Calgary in 1988, just a few months ahead of time, won gold at the 1000 meters at Calgary. Yes. She became a track cyclist because her coach wanted her to take it up in the off season from speed skating. We find that there's a lot of overlap there because the muscles needed are very similar. Adding the cycling helped her win the gold at Sarajevo and she won in the 500 meter. She wanted to compete in both sports after that. And the East German government said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not doing this. But eventually they relented and she started competing in, in both winter and summer sports. We get to the track cycling event. And you've got all these hard, heavy hitters going head-to-head. Erica Salome beats Connie Paris-Gaven-Young in two straight races in the semifinals. So Salome's going on to the finals. The other semifinal, Luding Rotenberger needed three races because it was a best two out of three event. So she needed all three races to beat Frances Isabel Gautaran. She won, and that guaranteed that she was going to be the first person ever to win medals in both a summer and winter games in the same year and probably one of the last the only yeah she remains the only yes because then the the after 1992 they split so you can't do that anymore so you got the finals against salome and looting rotenberger looting rotenberger wins the first race salome goes on to win the next two to win the gold medal so big deal soviet wins the first gold medal It was the first gold medal for her. She became a hero in Estonia. She and a basketball player, Tiet Soko, were honored at Town Hall Square in Tallinn, Estonia, on October 4th, two days after the games were over. And thousands of people came out for this and also demonstrated that they wanted Estonia to become an independent National Olympic Committee for Barcelona. Little did they know... Little did they know that they would get that dream because that was very early days of the Iron Curtain breaking apart. And Estonia did become independent in 1991, became its own National Olympic Committee for Barcelona. Salome successfully defended her gold medal at Barcelona. And on the medal stand, 
they raised the Estonian flag upside down. Well, to be fair, it's one of those three stripe flags and it was brand new. And I bet most people would get it wrong. She went on to compete in Atlanta. She placed sixth there. She was just beloved in Estonia. She was voted the Athlete of the Year nine times in the 80s and 90s. And according to Otteland, an Estonian website, she was a politician for a while. And now she lives in Spain. And according to the publication Estonia Life, there are two movies about her in the works, a documentary and a feature film. You know what that means. (laughs) Movie club. I hope. I hope. Let's get these developed. She did sell her gold medals at auction in 2013, and they went for $40,000 each. Krista Luding-Rotenberger went back to speed skating, and at age 32, she competed at Albertville, 1992, where she was roommates with one Claudia Peckstein. Who doesn't seem capable of retiring. Right, right. And Krista here was the team mom. They called her mom back in the day because she was the old person on the team. And that's what Claudia Peckstein became. Claudia Peckstein is close to becoming the team grandma. I mean, she just does not give up. (laughs) Right. And Krista, Albertville, she placed eighth in the 1,000 meter but got a bronze in the 500 meter. So that was really cool. And then for the bronze medal at Seoul 1988, Connie paris young beat Isabel Gotharan to get the bronze. It was the USA's only cycling medal of these games. And the U.S. was coming off of a, an Olympics where they had, you know, you had the benefit of a boycott. So you had a, a bump in, in the medals. And being the host nation, which always gets a bump. Exactly. So uh, she went on to compete at two more Olympics after Seoul, but she did not repeat on the podium. And before Barcelona, she coached one Bonnie Blair, who was trying to transition to becoming a track cyclist as well. This is becoming six degrees of track cycling. <laughs> it, it really is. Have any of them been in a movie with Kevin Bacon? <laughs> I don't know. But she is in the U.S. Bicycling Hall of Fame and runs youth cycling programs in Southern California through the Connie Cycling Foundation. So one event spawned a lot of greatness at Soul 88. Welcome to Shukflistan. Now is the time where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests to the show and you listeners who make up our citizenship of Shuklistan, our very own country. Let's start with some results. So Kim Rohde won the World Cup gold medal in women's skeet shooting. Uh, John Schuster made it to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Curling Mixed Doubles National Championship, but did not advance any further in the tournament. And Annika Malasinski will be competing in the last World Cup race of the season in Oslo, Norway this weekend. In other news, Brianna Decker has retired from the U.S. women's hockey team to focus on coaching. Claire Egan is speaking about anti-doping at the Your Future Olympian Virtual Summit, which is geared toward parents and supporters of young athletes to give them insight into the world of elite sports. And we will have a link to that registration in the show notes. And get well soon wishes to Luca Jones, who is fighting her second bout with COVID-19. And listener David has learned how to digitize his old VHS tapes and is busy reliving several past Olympics while doing so. And listener David, I expect to see some posts in the Facebook group of some cool things you found in there. All of the old commercials, can you imagine? 
I, I understand there might be a YouTube channel, but we'll we'll find out. Maybe there will be a link in the show notes. We have a YouTube channel. We do have a YouTube channel. Flame Alive Pod is where you can find us. I did not tell you this, but I'm going to tell it to you now. Okay. I won the lottery. I was <gasps> in the lottery and it went to junk and I missed my window. No way. Yes. <gasps> and I had a window earlier than yours. I didn't even no. know it was there. Oh, my goodness. Oh. So the reason I mention this is we are going to talk a little bit about tickets, but for people who are in the lottery, I didn't even think that it could have gone to junk because I've been getting things from Paris 2024 in my regular inbox, but this wasn't one of them. That is a downer. That is very much a bummer. So yes, if you were in the lottery, you are still in the lottery. The make your own pack lottery is over now, but we are going to move on to the second lottery, which will be for single ticket sales. And that starts on May 11th. So I think if you weren't in the first lottery, you can still go and sign up. We'll, we'll put a link to the ticket site in the show notes. But a lot of unhappy people in that first lottery. But you always hear the unhappy people. We have so many listeners who are going. They got some tickets. They got some good tickets and things that they wanted, which is fantastic. But there were a lot of, especially French people, there was a, a poll done by Odoxa that found that like eight in 10 people thought the ticket prices were way too high. I don't think they had a lot of those 24 euro tickets in this round. I think they're hanging on to those for later. I would agree. I bet that's the case. And maybe they think if you're coming for three events, you're coming for multiple days. So you probably want to see or, you know, maybe the idea is you are planning to spend a fair amount of money for hotel and being there for a while. So you might as well, you know, spend some money on tickets. We'll see what happens as we go along. Found out and Inside the Games has reported that the Notre Dame construction will not be finished until at least December 2024, which, you know, that the IOC really was hoping to have the beautiful backdrop ready to go for all of the aerial shots, but not to be. Not surprising. We had a pandemic that shut things down and slowed some things down. And when you have an ancient cathedral that you're trying to rebuild after a devastating fire, it's not like you can get Joe the contractor to just <laughs> slap some plywood up. And nor do you want Joe the contractor to slap some plywood up. Can you imagine that? Or as they they did in Beijing where they put wallpaper up. Oh, right, tape. right, 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 right. That, that was in the hotels. Or you don't want them to, to hire the person that that re touched up those paintings and totally ruined them. Remember that woman who did the, the art restoration? <laughs> yeah, that was in Italy, I believe, where she went in the church and made Jesus look like a potato. <laughs> so we don't want that with Notre Dame. No, Notre, Notre Dame deserves better than a potato. The bright side of this is that they've put together a free exhibit about the work and the restoration. That is in an underground area in front of the church. That exhibit will be open during the games. So that's something if you would like to see Notre Dame, that's something that you will be able to go and still enjoy and learn some more about the process. We are close to 500 days to go. Can you believe that? My stomach hurts. <laughs> yes. Tuesday, March 14th is the official 500 days to go mark till Paris. And to celebrate that, the organizers are staging a 24-hour relay around the world. 
So this will be at 9 a.m. local time, and it kind of passes off from time zone to time zone. The people involved in this are like the embassies and consulates and permanent representations of France overseas, and they're going to have a whole bunch of events at 9 a.m. on their time zone. Things like in Paris, there will be a race along the Seine. In Brisbane, in Australia, there's going to be an eight-person boat rowing down the Brisbane River. There's going to be a relay race along the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. In Hong Kong, there will be a 5K throughout the city, and then it crosses the finish line on a dragon boat. I don't know how that will work, but that sounds very cool. In Turkey, there's going to be a solidarity race in honor of the recent earthquake there. And then in Ireland, there's going to be a 3K light jog at Sean Moore Park. I and... love the Irish. It's a light <laughs> jog, followed by a pint. That's my kind of event. <laughs> and you'll be able to enter the draw to get into that Marathon for All 10K event at the Paris 2024 is holding. That one is free. We found a link on Eventbrite for that. So we will put that in the show notes if you are in Dublin or going to be near Dublin on the 14th. Maybe you want to truck over to the park and have a light jog. Also something I have not shared with the listeners. My Italian citizenship came through. So I'm, I am officially a dual citizen. So when 2026 comes in, they have to let me into the country. <laughs> now, this can also mean they won't let me out of the country because I'll have done something wrong. <laughs> but yes, it is official. It is so cool. Very excited for you. I'm so excited. <laughs> also very cool, but not official. Not official from the organizing committee, but Italiani.it is reporting that the mascot that won the public vote is the stoats or the ermines, whatever you would like to call them. So we are looking at probably animals being our Winter Olympic mascot. And I do, I, I have to say, when I ended up to vote, I had a very hard time because I like both. And I think I ended up two different days voting for each of them. <laughs> But I do love the Stoats in the way that I loved Bing Duen Duen and Shui Ron Ron because I feel like there's one for each of us. Like you're the slightly taller one and I'm the slightly shorter one. <laughs> the flowers I didn't feel we really could identify with, but these, these are us. And I love that. The, the thing about the flowers that I kept thinking about is if you've ever been to a, a big figure skating event and they have merch there... They sell those stuffed flowers that you can throw on the ice instead of you throwing real flowers on the ice now. And I just kept thinking that people would be throwing these these mascots all over the ice at figure skating if they would go. But do you know how soft those stoats stuffed animals are going to be? Incredibly. Incredibly, because that's ermine. I mean, you got to make those bellies rubbable. Oh, we have no. some. Yes, we have some IOC news. This is kind of, this is actually kind of interesting because the IOC has announced the sports for its esports series. The esports series will culminate at the end of June, June 22 to 25 in Singapore. So they have released the games that they are going to be competing with. And it's like the Olympics, they they partner with the international federations and I believe the federations run the show on all of these. So they've got nine games, nine different sports, archery. They are playing tic-tac-bow. 
baseball. They are playing WBSC eBaseball Power Pros. Chess is chess.com. Cycling is Swift. Dance sport is Just Dance. Motorsport is Gran Turismo. Sailing is Virtual Regatta. Taekwondo is Virtual Taekwondo. And tennis is a game called Tennis Clash. We've played a lot of Just Dance in my house. Oh, you well, should see me on Istanbul, not Constantinople. I rock that. Maybe you should find a qualifier. I don't do so well with the Katy Perry tunes, though. <laughs> There's an article in a publication called Digiday that, that talked about how the esports industry was not thrilled with these choices because they are not games that the competitive esports leagues play. But the esports leagues are prone to games that involve a lot of violence. And the IOC is anti-violent esport games. So that is one disparity. The other thing they noted that it was interesting was that a lot of these games are mobile games that you can play on your phone or a tablet. And that makes them more accessible to people around the world who may not have the means to get the hardcore gaming computer stuff and equipment that these other esports, especially the competitive esports players use. And it's kind of like the IOC is using its brand to interest fans who like the Olympics to get them interested in gaming stuff. And it's another way that they can use their brand and, and some leverage, some sponsorship among its existing fan base. And one of the things that the IOC talked a lot about when it was talking about using the esports was getting games that are physical. So when you play Just Dance, you work up a sweat. Hmm. It is not a joke. You can really get your workout with Just Dance. I don't know these others, but just looking at what they chose, you know, virtual taekwondo, virtual regatta, those don't sound like games you play in your little gaming chair. It sounds like games you have to get up and move around, which was the point of them partnering with esports. So, you know, we can say we're going to throw down at some of these qualifiers. <laughs> I see your face. <laughs> I'm telling you, Istanbul, not Constantinople, I will take you out. <laughs> so the qualifiers have started. We will have a link to, in the show notes to find out more about how you can participate. If you do participate, let us know. Let us know how it goes. If you play any of these games, let us know what you think of them and what you think of the whole esports thing being part of the Olympics, but not part of the, the actual Olympics yet. That's some new music to denote that it is time to talk International Paralympic Committee news. And the IPC has released a new strategic plan to take them through to 2026. And the whole vision is to make for an inclusive world through Parasport. So the plan focuses on serving as members and athletes, of course, delivering the Olympic Games and showcasing athlete excellence through delivery of the Paralympic Games driving impact through parasport and using the influence of the IPC to advance disability inclusion around the world, and then also continue to build their professional organization. And one thing I thought that was interesting in the plan was that they are looking at ways to develop the Paralympic Winter Games. Which is very interesting because the Winter Olympics right now is struggling to find a host and struggling because of climate change to have various events around the world. You know, biathlon has been struggling with weather issues. I know skiing, alpine, has been struggling. So the Paralympics trying to expand their winter sports at a time when winter sports in general are facing 
a whole new set of challenges makes this very complex because you've got two different problems going on at the same time. Yeah. I mean, how how long do we have winter games? But, you know, and <clears throat> I think some of the issues are we just have drastic weather shifts in so many different places around the world now. And understanding what the weather could be several years out, who knows? Because where I live, we've had hardly any snow all year and we get snow. You know, you have enough to cross country ski. You have enough. There's downhill skiing here. You would not call it downhill, but there is some downhill here. But we just haven't had the weather for it this year. It's been so warm. It's been wet in terms of rain, but not snowy. Meanwhile, Southern California got snow and they never get snow. And there's just been so much snow dumped in the Lake Tahoe area. Is this volatile weather something that you can reliably count on? And how does that affect sports when you also have to create a new infrastructure for people with particular disabilities? You know, you, when you do a sit ski, you can't do the same kind of chairlift. Mm -hmm. You probably need to do the gondolas. So just simple things like that. Right. You're creating a new infrastructure. Where do you put your money? And are you going to do a lot of artificial snow or those kind of facilities? So it really is a complex issue. I'm thrilled that they've got this new plan in place because it shows how much they're thinking. Yeah. And it shows that the organization is at a different place in its history. You know, now we're at a place where we can evolve from here, and this is how we want to do it. That's very cool. One other thing I think about the Winter Games, I wonder if they will look at bringing sledge racing back because that could be indoor. Remember how we saw, we've seen it mentioned a long ago, like 1998 might have been the last time they had sledge racing, but maybe they'll look at bringing some indoor sports back into the fold. I so want to get in one of those sleds. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, maybe. I, I cannot wait to see when women's sled hockey is going to be an event because you know that's coming slow, but maybe maybe once a couple of women get on board, that'll change. We would like to thank all of you supporting this show, whether you tell a friend, whether you participate in our Facebook group or send us messages on different platforms. We really pre appreciate you being there with us. We want to let our patrons know that our Patreon episode for March is coming out soon. We will be playing Mascot Madness, so get ready for bracket fun. If you are a gold level patron, you will get to join us for that taping. Get excited that we're also finding more rules changes that will change how you watch sports at Paris 2024. That is our regular bonus content for silver and gold and above level patrons at Patreon. You can find out how to become a patron at flamealivepod.com slash support. And that will do it for this week. Let us know what you thought of inaugural ballers. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAMEIT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. You can sign up for that at flamealivepod.com. Oh, next week. Next week's a show, right? Speaking of Paralympics. <laughs> That's right. We are so excited to bring you our interview with the armless archer, 
Matt Stutzman. He will be on to talk about how the sport works and how he participates in it. So be sure to tune in for that. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>